If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from the makers of BBC History magazine. What secrets can medieval human remains unlock? Broadcaster and academic Professor Alice Roberts is the presenter of the BBC's Digging for Britain series and an expert on the study of human bones. Using cutting-edge science, she's unearthed fascinating details about how individuals lived and died that give us new glimpses into the past. David Musgrove caught up with Alice to talk about her latest book, Crypt, and what archaeology can tell us about the Middle Ages. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Alice Roberts, who is author of Crypt, Life, Death and Disease in the Middle Ages and Beyond. So you say in your intro that the book is is a focus on pathology, on disease and injury and uh, the experience of human suffering in the past. Is this going to be a cheery chat that we have? Well, I do say that in the introduction, that these are not comforting tales. I suppose you can draw some comfort from them in that you can be very, very pleased that you live in the 21st century and medicine has moved on a bit since the Middle Ages. It's, well, it's completely different. I mean, those poor people in the Middle Ages were subject to all sorts of diseases for which they had no treatment, no cure, you know, no antibiotics, no vaccinations, and, and really no medicines that did much good. It is brutal. And the stories in the book are about the most brutal of of diseases. So the plague, you know, the Black Death that swept through in the 14th century carried off between a third and a half of the the European population. It's, It's quite appalling to even think about that, to think about that impact. So we've just lived through a pandemic, obviously, which was devastating. We We lost nearly a quarter of a million people over the last few years to COVID. But if we compare that with the Black Death in the 14th century, we would have been looking at millions and millions, tens of millions of people. Can you top line summary the book for us? What's it about? What are you trying to do? And perhaps how does it fit with a couple of your earlier books? So Crypt is the last in a trilogy, I think. (laughs) Unless I write another one and it turns into four books. But it runs on from Ancestors and Buried and it runs on in terms of its time frame. So we're entering the Middle Ages. Ancestors was all about prehistory. Buried was the first millennium of the common era. So Romans, Anglo-Saxons, Vikings, that kind of thing. And with, with Crypt, I basically start in the 11th century and get as far as the 16th century. 
But there is a shift in focus, as you said, as well. So it is a lot more about pathology. So it's a lot more about disease and injury as well. Also, you know, violent injuries. So there's a couple of stories in there which focus on episodes of uh, of violence in English history. And then there's a lot on infectious diseases because there were a lot of infectious diseases around. So it's a series of stories about what we can understand from human remains and some of the fascinating research that's gone on. Now, when I studied archaeology at university 30-odd years ago, we spent a few seminars looking at bones, sort of measuring them, trying to identify where they came from, a skeleton. Very enjoyable, very interesting, I found. I imagine things have moved on a bit since then. What's, what's kind of the toolkit available to people who are studying human remains today? It has moved on a lot and it's incredibly fast. The change is incredibly fast. So my own background is is anatomy and osteology and particularly paleopathology, so looking for disease in ancient remains. But that whole field has just been transformed by genetics. So particularly when we're looking at infectious diseases, if I as an osteologist were to look at a bone and try to determine what kind of infection I'm looking at in that bone, most of the time I can't. I'm just left saying there are non-specific changes. There are new plaques of bone being laid down. You know, you see the way that the bone is responding to that disease, but you can't really say what the disease was. There's only a few cases where there are what we call pathognomonic changes. In other words, changes that are really characteristic of a particular disease. And those are in TB, leprosy and syphilis, basically. They in, And these are in the advanced stages of those diseases so still in the early stages it's very difficult to to discern or differentiate between them but now my geneticist friends can come along and look at the bones and take samples from them and obviously what I've been covering in detail in the other books in the trilogy is how you can extract human DNA from those samples and start to ask interesting questions about kinship about families um, relationships between people in, in cemeteries that kind of thing but also big big questions about migrations you can do that using the human dna but what's also in those bones is the pathogen dna any diseases that were on board in that person's body when they died will be there in the form of their uh, the dna of those pathogens so my archaeogeneticist friends can take these samples can sequence that dna And it's basically using the same technology that we use to test for COVID. So you're talking about PCR, you're talking about sequencing, and you're able to sequence that DNA, work out the code, and then you compare that with what we've got. So you compare that with big databases, and then you can match up that code and come to a very precise diagnosis of the actual pathogen. It is, it's very exciting, and it's completely transforming our understanding of diseases in the past. Because, of course, what the geneticist can also do is detect evidence of disease, infectious disease, where actually there's no trace on the bone. There's no, you know, when there's no discernible trace. So if you've got something which kills someone quickly, like the plague tends to kill someone within days, there's not going to be anything for me as an osteologist to see on the bones. But there will be some DNA there for the archaeogeneticist to find. So that's really incredible then, isn't it? Because as you say, you're suddenly you're able to understand a lot more about how people might have passed away with these new scientific techniques. Yeah. And it also shows us how diseases kind of operate in the past as well. So it's basically pushing epidemiology back in time and it's allowing us to see a real kind of long view of diseases that we've just not had before. So it actually has relevance to understanding diseases in the here and now as well and understanding those disease processes, how diseases change over time. Obviously, again, you know, using COVID because everyone's familiar with it, unfortunately, 
We know that there are different variants, that there are different mutations popping up. Sometimes they don't have any effect. Sometimes they might make the pathogen more virulent. And we can see that with diseases in the past as well. So we can see historically how different variants of diseases have appeared through time and what kind of effect those have had. And I think, I mean, the biggest revelation in the book is about the plague, because this has just been an incredible story that we now know that the three big pandemics of history So starting with the most recent and going back in time, you've got the big outbreak of plague in the 19th century into the 20th, which started with the so-called Hong Kong plague. That was identified at the time as being a particular bacterium responsible for it. It was called Yersinia pestis. It's named after the person who actually first identified that bacterium in pus from buboes. So, you know, it's the bubonic plague. So in pus from these great boils, he was able to look under the microscope and, and see these bacteria and they became named Yersinia pestis. Then we, uh, you know, more recently, now we've got these genetic tools, we've been able to go back to plague pits and mass burials where there's been an assumption that it might have been the plague, it might have been Yersinia pestis that was was responsible. But actually, you know, if we talk about the 14th century Black Death, there were lots of ideas about what that could have been. There were people saying, well, it might be some kind of hemorrhagic fever, it might be typhus. But actually, we can say now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's the same thing. It's the same thing as that 19th century outbreak of disease. It is the plague. It's Yersinia pestis. And then going back to the 6th century, when we've got the Justinianic plague, which wreaked havoc through the Byzantine Empire. And once again, and this is just coming out in the last few years, we know that that also is Yersinia pestis too. So we know now that those three big pandemics of history that you know are well attested historically It's the same pathogen. It's the same bacterial infection causing these outbreaks that suddenly become absolutely rampant and are written about. You're clear in the book that the science has really moved on the conversation. This is definitely the definitive answer then. Does that sort of end all all conversations about what the Black Death was? Yeah, we know the Black Death is Eugenia Pestis. We've got a diagnosis now. But science never stops. So now there are lots, there are many more questions. And we're we're now kind of looking in detail, you know, what happens to the Black Death? How does it tail off? Because obviously we have a big outbreak of disease. And, you know, what we're seeing is that it doesn't disappear completely. It becomes endemic in populations. And actually it comes back and back. So we see these occurring waves of, uh, of outbreaks, um, including the Great Plague of London in the 17th century. That is, you know, it's the same thing again. It's basically the Black Death coming back. So we're just collecting more and more and more evidence. And we're also pushing back the existence of the plague in human populations now back into prehistory. So we have no written records. Obviously, that's the whole definition of prehistory. But we know now that the plague was affecting human populations in the Bronze Age. And just this last summer, we had the publication of Bronze Age plague in Britain for the first time. That was from Pontus Scoglin's lab in the Crick Institute in London, and particularly the work of Dr. Pooja Swali, who was focusing on these disease genomes. And, And elsewhere, we know it goes back as far as the Neolithic. So the plague has been with us for thousands of years. Yeah, that was quite a striking revelation to me that it's a it's a prehistoric disease as much as anything else. That's you just don't associate that you, you know, you associate it with terrible things in the 14th century but not prehistory, but but now there's proof that there was. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's telling us something really important about what happens to diseases when they become endemic. They're not necessarily going to stay at a low level and not causing too much mortality. There's the potential for them to burst out and cause terrible 
terrible mortality again. So, you know, if we're thinking about what we're doing with COVID and the here and now, it makes us perhaps, you know, a, a little bit nervous about the way that we're treating it and just allowing it to, to be there in our population. We come back to that later on, maybe just for a, a few more thoughts on that. But can I take you back to the first story in, in your book where you talk about the St. Bryce's Day massacre? which is a really interesting story. And just a little bit of context. Um, so that is when King Ethelred II apparently ordered the, the killing of all the Danes in his kingdom. And so that was the end of the 10th, early 11th century was when Ethelred reigned. And that was when there was a succession of assaults by sizable Scandinavian Viking armies in England. And Ethelred's response was sometimes to pay them off, but in 1002, he seemingly instituted a massacre of all the Danes in England, which rather begs the question of, of how a Dane was identified, which hopefully we can we can chat about in a second. So that's an event that's been much discussed by historians. What does science tell us about it? What does the, what does the, the sort of technology that you've been talking about just now tell us? And particularly, what does scientific study of the bones found in a mass grave in Oxford tell us about that event? Yeah, I mean, that's it's such a horrific episode in history, and it shows really kind of graphically how important it is for leaders to be very careful about the language that they're using and the kind of ramifications of of using divisive language. And when you read Ethelred's edict, it's really chilling. I mean, he's saying, go out and find the Danes who've, who've risen up amongst us like cockle among the wheat. I mean, it's it, it's basically saying that they're like weeds. Cockle is a, is a type of weed that grows in wheat fields. So it's similar to using words like vermin, you know, it's that kind of othering, dehumanising language and led to an outbreak of ethnically motivated violence in England. I mean, it's very strange because, as you say, he was paying the Danes off. So he uh, he was paying increasing amounts of money to try to keep a lid on this endless kind of threat from the Danes, from the Vikings. And he presumably just got to the point where he got to breaking point and, and decided that, even those people of Viking heritage that had settled in England were were now targets and were now going to be victims, despite the fact that his own wife was, you know, of Viking descent. I mean, it's quite horrific. The extraordinary story in that in that chapter is focusing on the mass grave that was discovered in Oxford, where there was a lot of signs of violent injury. I mean, there's one skull with, I think, um, seven or eight blade wounds on the skull. I mean, it's quite horrific. And what they all say had was signs of charring too. And the dating of it seems to fit as well. So it looks like we have actually, you know, it's like a forensic case. We've got the the actual physical evidence of this episode of violence, which is pretty well attested in history. Although I must say the accounts get more florid. It was quite interesting researching what was said about the St. Bryce's Day massacre because it became more and more florid and violent with with the telling. So by the time you get to later Normans writing about it, they're really kind of exaggerating, I think, what the level of violence that happened. But there is no doubt that this was this was a violent episode in English history. What do we know about these bones then? Have we been able to ascertain whether where where the people came from? Is that part of the story um, in terms of using ADNA to understand where they might have grown up? Yeah, so obviously but there's a number of things that we can do with bones now to try and work out a little bit about where people are from. And that is a more complicated question than than perhaps it first seems. So if we're talking about identity, then we still don't know how people represented themselves or how they thought about themselves. And we can't get at that, obviously, through the 
through the physical remains. But what we can get at is some idea of their own genetic heritage. And we can also find perhaps family relationships between people. So very interestingly, one of those individuals from the mass grave in Oxford is very, very closely related to an individual who was buried many hundreds of miles away on a Danish island. So it's incredible to be able to make those kind of connections where you go, okay, we've got, we've basically got what looks like second degree relatives. So maybe a grandfather, grandson or uncle, nephew, that kind of distance of, uh, of relatives. It looks as though some of those individuals are local and others came from further afield in terms of where they grew up. Now we can ascertain that not by looking at the DNA, because, you know, the DNA isn't telling you where you grew up. It's just telling you what you've inherited from your parents. But we can look at isotopes of different elements, particularly oxygen and strontium in teeth. So those elements exist in slightly different forms in nature. And actually, those can be linked to different climates and different types of geology as well. And so what we've got there is an, is an opportunity to actually look at people and say, you know, are they buried close to where they grew up or does it look like they, they moved from further abroad? And it looks like we've got a mixture of people, as you might expect. I mean, if these people are, as Ethelred describes, the cockle among the wheat, then we're talking about people who've settled in England. So we're not necessarily talking about people who, you know, grew up in Scandinavia and, and came here during their lifetime. It might have been their parents or their grandparents or even, or even earlier generations who made that trip. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And is this a good moment to talk about the fish event horizon? Because when I was on social media saying how excited I was to uh, to, to chat about you and, and how good the book was, um, I mentioned that uh, you, you talk about the fish event horizon, which which I've talked about with other people on the podcast before, and I, I love the concept. So perhaps you could just tell us what it is and maybe how that how it fills in this story a little bit. It is hilarious, isn't it? I mean, 
it just sounds completely bonkers. It sounds like something you would you would get in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the fish event horizon. It's basically about the amount of fish that people were eating in the first millennium. And we can use different isotopes to look at people's diet. And we can use isotopes of carbon and nitrogen to, and, and this is from the bones this time, to look at the levels, for instance, of the cereal plants that people were eating versus other kind of plants, and then also um, terrestrial versus marine protein. And when you say marine protein, most of the time you're talking about fish. So interestingly, what you can do is, is see a difference, or you, you can detect a difference between populations who are largely kind of Scandinavian in origin and, and eat quite a bit of fish. I mean, it's a sort of Viking thing to eat fish. And I got slightly obsessed with Vikings and fish um, in that chapter, actually, because you can pretty much match the Viking diaspora onto the distribution of cod in the North Atlantic to the extent that I think that probably the Viking diaspora is about is almost driven by cod in a strange way in that I think you've got the development of deep sea fishing techniques and boats that will take you to those particular fisheries that is helping to drive that migration. Also the development of preservation techniques, particularly drying fish to make it into stockfish, because then you've got something which you can take with you on long sea journeys. So you've not only got the boats that will carry you there, but you've got the the food that will stay preserved on those on those long voyages so there's a really interesting story to be told about cod and vikings anyway so we can see a difference between anglo-saxons in britain and vikings in terms of fish eating up until the fish event horizon and then at the fish event horizon the anglo-saxons start eating fish as well so then you can't do it anymore so it is about kind of um, dietary preferences and vikings predilection for fish which they then infect the rest of the British population with. And I think we still quite like fish today. So, yeah. So that's a little bit of fun, but in a, in a serious topic here, this this massacre. You've got a quote from Professor Judith Yesh in the book. She's a great Viking expert. She's been on the podcast a couple of times, actually, if listeners want to uh, search her archive to, to hear from her. And she's talking about how the need to try and integrate science and historical study together and, and make it a, a sort of a cohesive subject. I wonder, how does that work in terms of the St. Bryce's Day massacre story and, and what, what has been found out about these bones? Can you sort of bring it together for us about what it tells us generally about what might have happened in the year 1002? Well, I think we're seeing, I mean, yeah, I mean, Judith Jesh's work is is absolutely brilliant. I love the way, I mean, I, I think that it's so fascinating when you start to bring different disciplines together and you, and you just get a much better, clearer picture of the past when you do this synthesis of history and archaeology. And of course, not just history and archaeology, but also literature and language as well. You know, what's fascinating, of course, is that there's a lot of Viking language in English. You know, a lot of Viking words have uh, have entered our English language. I mean, every time you open a gate, you're, open, <laughs> you're opening something which you're giving a Viking name to. But yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think for me, the, the, the evidence of the, of the St. Bryce's Day massacre is just adding another element to that you know again we're you know we're seeing archaeological evidence of something which is which is well attested in history it does feel very forensic in that I suppose when police are investigating a case they'll be collecting lots of evidence from people in terms of their recollections of what happened and they'll be taking those witness accounts taking down those testimonies but they'll also be interrogating the physical evidence and obviously archaeology is the physical evidence 
And and I think it's, you know, it is extraordinary to have an event like the St. Bryce's Day Massacre and, and to have a site, which I think it's it's difficult to say it definitely is. But I think the weight of the evidence would lead, I think, most people on a jury to accept that what we're looking at is the actual physical evidence of that outbreak of violence, particularly the charring of the bones, which hasn't happened in situ. So those bones haven't been burnt where they were buried. It's not as though they were kind of semi-cremated in the pit that they ended up in. And this particular episode in the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, where we've got evidence of a particular church where it said that people of Danish, Danish heritage fled and took sanctuary in this church, and then it was burnt to the ground. So this is what we think that that burial relates to, the poor people that were trying to seek sanctuary in a church and ended up being being killed in a quite horrific way. Can we move on and talk about leprosy for a moment? Got a really interesting story about leprosy. And you start off the, the chapter with, a, with a, a graphic description of the terrible impact of leprosy, or it's Hansen's disease, we should, we should call it, isn't it? Of one individual, Skeleton 19, who was found on the site of a medieval hospital in Winchester, southern England. Without getting too gory, could you give us a bit of a sense of what that skeleton tells us about the horrific impact of, of that disease on people. This is evidence from the St Mary Magdalen site in Winchester where you do have these skeletons where it is very obvious what the disease is because there are several skeletons with, with advanced leprosy, which is very, very characteristic. And you get changes particularly around the facial bones. So the, the disease infects the facial tissues and then you end up with resorption of bone and it can be quite extreme. So it can get to the point where actually the bone is is shrinking back and being resorbed, particularly around the maxillae. So the, the pieces of the upper jaw that, that frame the bottom of your nose, but also hold your upper teeth. And eventually the, the front parts of the maxillae become completely resorbed so that in one particular skeleton from that site, you you just see the see the whole of the upper jaw has has basically gone in the front. So that person will have lost all their front teeth or their incisors. Um, I think there was one molar on each side just still clinging on, and the nose itself is is much much widened, and the nasal space just opens into the mouth. So it's it's a horrific disease, and it causes this dreadful you know facial disfigurement. And it also has implications for extremities as well. So it attacks nerves. And when you get this nerve damage, it means that you lose sensation in your extremities. And then you get other infections. So you don't notice that you've hurt your hand or your foot. And so you get other infections taking hold. And those obviously go untreated. And then eventually you will get bone resorption and you know a lot of damage to, to hands and feet. And there's also evidence of, of amputation um, in that in that cemetery as well. But once again, we've got the opportunity to do genetic testing of these bones. And again, what we see is that we can test those bones and you find, yes, yes, you've got that. You've got the bug you expected, which is Mycobacterium leprae. But actually, there are skeletons which don't have changes or have very subtle, non-specific changes. And again, you can make that diagnosis of leprosy where there's much less effect on the bones, but there may have been more effect on soft tissues, obviously. So it's it's really interesting. And, and again, it's interesting to think about why leprosy 
became so aggressive and affected so many people during the Middle Ages. And, you know, whether it's something to do with the disease itself or whether it's something to do with what what people were doing. And certainly we've got a lot of people moving around in the Middle Ages. You've obviously got the Crusades going on, which are taking large numbers of people around Europe and uh, and into Western Asia. And you've also got a lot of tourism in the form of the, you know, the religious tourism that we call pilgrimage. So again, you know, reflecting on COVID, what you see if people are moving around, if there's plenty of movement between countries, is that that's a brilliant way of moving pathogens around as well. So we're starting to kind of unpick what was going on in terms of the interaction between pathogens and human societies. But I think what's really interesting about that story, particularly the story of St. Mary Magdalene, is this kind of social response to it and the fact that, you know, this is when we get really the, you know, that there have been hospitals before, but not on the scale that we start to see hospitals, particularly in the Norman period in Britain. And St. Mary Magdalene in Winchester is a is a very, very early Norman hospital. And what the archaeology has done is push back the date of that. For a while, it was thought it might even be pre-Norman. I remember following this story as it was happening. And there was a possibility for a while that it could have been an Anglo-Saxon hospital, which was quite exciting because it was always said that the Normans kind of invented hospitals and brought them over. But it actually, the earliest definite dates that we've got from, from that site are Norman. But they are earlier than any of the historical records. The, the archaeology, again, is telling us something that the history books didn't. It's a bit of a, a medieval trope, isn't it? Kind of the, the idea of the begging leper trying to hide terrible disfigurements under a dirty cloak, sort of despised and shunned by neighbours. What does the research of the skeletons at this site kind of tell us about how people with the disease might have been treated, not so much medically, by, but by treated by the population and, and that level, that sense of stigma or not? Is that, is that a true trope or is it uh, just filmography? I think whenever you've got a kind of interpretation like that, which seems like a kind of single answer, people are much more complex than that. You know, it's like I'm slightly allergic to that co- that whole kind of description of what people thought in the past when it's just one thing. You know, the Romans believed in this or the Anglo-Saxons thought this. And it's like, d- uh, come on, people are diverse. We don't, you know, across Britain today, we don't all believe in the same thing or react in the same way to to different challenges in our own lives or or to other people. So I think it's always diverse. And what's interesting when you start reading the literature is that you, you do see a range of opinions about leprosy. You do see it being described as a scourge and a, a punishment for sins. But you also see it being described as something which is bringing the sufferer closer to God. And therefore, there's an idea that the, the sufferer of leprosy is, is somehow holy. You also see doctors being very, very careful about diagnosing leprosy. And one physician in particular who who says, you know, he's, he's very, very careful about diagnosing someone with leprosy because he knows there's a stigma associated with it. So, you know, that's saying, yes, yes, there is a stigma. And, you know, doctors are, doctors are kind of uh, 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 well aware of that. I think these hospitals are really interesting because they seem to be about looking after the people with leprosy, certainly. They may have grown up around communities that were starting to form themselves anyway, but you've got people who are all suffering with a similar condition who are coming together, looking after each other and being cared for as well. As you say, in a palliative way, there is no treatment. There's definite evidence of, I think, compassion and care there. There is, I think, in the burials too. So the burials at St Mary Magdalene are are beautifully laid out. 
very carefully constructed head niche burials, the the so-called pilgrim's grave where he's buried with um, presumably his pilgrim's bag with the scallop shell on it, which is just incredible. Those are people who are not hurriedly buried. There's been every every care, every attention paid to the, the way that they are um, interred in the ground. So I think we're seeing something quite important there. But then on the other hand, what those hospitals are doing is withdrawing those people and keeping them away from the rest of society, perhaps. So you can look at them in a different way and say, is this about hiding them from from society? Is it difficult to look at and therefore they are shut away? So there may be an aspect of that. On the other hand, the hospitals are in quite prominent places on the way into Winchester. You know, it's a, it's a prominently cited situation for St Mary Magdalene's Hospital. It's outside the city walls, which is what you might expect for a leprosarium, but it's not hidden away. It is almost like an advert as you go into Winchester. Here's our leprosy hospital. Don't we do well looking after our ill? And it's an opportunity for the the rich benefactors of a city like Winchester to demonstrate that they are being philanthropic, that they are funding these institutions as well. So it it demonstrates the philanthropy of these um, incredibly wealthy people in society. And it also is a is a great way of attracting extra donations, of course, you know, hoping that travellers that passers by might actually give a bit of cash to the to the leprosarium. You're not you're not hiding it away, away from those thoroughfares. So it's really it's very, very complex and there's a lot going on. That's really interesting. And it takes us a long way away from that trope that I positioned to start with. Can I just take you back to what you were talking about at the start of the interview and, and, and ask you how studying medieval human remains, using all the new tools at the paleopathologist's hands now, can help us to either understand or cope or think about diseases that we face today? You, you, you mentioned COVID and, and perhaps our response to it at the moment. Does this have any sort of modern relevance, any, any modern importance? Yeah, of course it does, because we're basically projecting epidemiology back into the past. So we are learning about diseases through time. When you see diseases affecting human populations, it's an interaction between the pathogen and human society. And you might have a disease that suddenly becomes worse because of something that's happened in human society. For instance, in the in the Black Death, I think, with all the moving around that was happening in, in, in Europe in the Middle Ages, or it might be a change in the pathogen itself. And obviously, we're really, really interested in understanding all of those infectious agents better and being able to understand how a mutation, how a change in the genotype might actually contribute to a change in the way that the pathogen operates. And we were doing that in real time during COVID, which was very, very impressive to be able to look at how mutations were, were, for instance, altering the spike protein on COVID. And we were trying to then predict whether those mutations were going to unleash a particularly virulent wave of COVID. So understanding pathogens in the past gives us information and arms us to understand pathogens, you know, right now much better. So it's, you know, it's interesting from a historical perspective, but yeah, it absolutely has relevance today as well. One last question, if I can, just thinking about the personal experience of, of looking at human remains. And you, you're telling lots of stories, which other people, you know, lots of other scientists have, have done the research that, that informs the stories you're telling. But you personally have studied human remains a lot, I know. 
when you're looking at remains like this, you know, if you look at the skull of that unfortunate skeleton with the leprosy clearly on the face, how do you respond to that? How does it make you feel? Do you feel uncomfortable when you're looking at those sorts of bones and, and, and sort of thinking about the, the humanity of it? I mean, this is what I do. So it's, it is it is kind of, you know, I, I suppose I'm quite clinical in my in my approach to it. And you are looking at those bones and being quite objective about the information that you can glean from them. And there's a kind of uh, a clinical professionalism to that. But you are looking at people and you you cannot fail to think about those individuals and the experience that they had. You know, each of those individuals was a, a real living person. And when you see the the signs of terrible disease like leprosy on those bones and you you, of course, think about what it would have been like to live with that disease and you know how society would have treated you, but also how difficult it would have been to just look after yourself on a daily basis. You know how difficult it would have been to to even hold things, to pick things up, to feed yourself. And then I think the the bones that always have the greatest impact on me are the ones where there's signs of violence, because you're you're looking at you know not just a an unconscious or unfeeling pathogen. You know the viruses and the bacteria they're not malevolent. They're just doing their thing. But when you see a, a blade wound on a skull and you know that that's one human attacking another, I think that evidence of brutality always leaves me feeling very uncomfortable indeed. You know, those poor people at the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, it's awful. You know, you're separated from it by centuries, but, you know, this is a, a dreadful crime and, and an awful way for those people to die. Well, thank you, Alice. That's been a very interesting conversation and a, a good sort of sensitive way to finish, I hope, on, on what's obviously a sensitive topic. Is there anything crucial we've missed? Any big questions I should have asked you? No, I've really enjoyed talking to you about it, actually, Dave. And it's, I, I've, I've really enjoyed writing this book. I think I've particularly enjoyed this volume because it does take me back to my, my own kind of roots, as it were. My PhD was in paleopathology. It's just, and it's such an exciting area, these revelations that are coming from genetics. And we'll see many more revelations coming in the next couple of years. The Thousand Ancient Genomes Project that I've been tracking through the course of these three books that's happening in the Crick Institute in London. It's the biggest uh, ancient DNA project that's been carried out in this country. And we'll see many, many more results coming from that in just the next couple of years. All of that research is starting to come to fruition now. And there should be a nice big exhibition about it as well um, to look forward to in the future. So, yeah, watch this space. I mean, I think that there's get the, there will be more revelations. It's it's a fascinating area and it's just an, a fantastic example of how science is helping us to understand history. It's giving us other evidence to look at alongside the documentary evidence. And sometimes it's challenging what we thought we knew about history as well. So I'm really excited to see Crypt being published at the end of February. And I'm on tour as well into March. I've just added a few more dates. I think Bristol and Exeter and Harrogate. So, yeah, that's all on my website. That was Professor Alice Roberts. Crypt, Life, Death and Disease in the Middle Ages and Beyond is published now by Simon and Schuster. If you'd like to find out more, then head to Alice's website alice-roberts.co.uk Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.